This week's Eldritch Lorecast, we are coming to you live from twitch.tv slash ghostfire underscore official. Or, of course, you can listen to us in all the usual places. We're talking about lots of stuff. I don't think this is a very good intro, so I'm going to give it one more go. Sorry. This week's episode of the Eldritch Lorecast, we are discussing what level is optimal for D&D 5e and something else. All that and more right now. Hello, everybody, and welcome to this week's episode of the Eldritch Lorecast, the number one podcast in all of the planes and the number one D&D podcast on Twitch one day, I'm sure. We are now on Twitch, so hello to the Twitch chat. My name is Ben Byrne, and I am here, as always, with Dale Kingsmill, James Hake, Sean Merwin, and Sean, I have another question here from Gethin. Gethin wants to know uh, what level 20 character are you bringing to the Vecna D&D Beyond one shot? If I was like, all right, we're running it right now or we're running it hypothetically, hypothetically, uh, next week, uh, what character build are you Mm. bringing? I want you to promise me we're running it next week before I give you my answer. (laughs) (laughs) I don't want to make promises on on your three's behalf. The the last level 20 adventure I ran, I played a, a monk, a 20th level monk, in in Mr. James Intracasso's adventure, Planet of the Tarasque, he, he did very well. He did very well. Uh, it, this was a couple of years ago now. And for some reason, whatever I did worked perfectly for that adventure. I could fly. I could survive several bites from the Tarasque. Uh, it just worked out very well. So that that would be my go-to. Were you monk the whole way through? There was no like multi-class shenanigans? I am far too lazy to go get into (laughs) multi-classing. So I just went straight. uh, I believe it was a half-orc monk. And even the half-orc's ability to get up from one time per long rest from going to zero hit points uh, helped me in that sense. You're right. That sounds like it was a difficult one shot indeed if you were going down to zero. Mm -hmm. Uh, Dale Kingsmill, what character are you bringing? We've got a monk in the party. I think I would go abjuration wizard. Just just be really like heavy on control rather than damage for the most part. Really like to just be a nuisance to Vecna if I could. Yeah, fair enough. Uh, the whole 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 way I wizard think as well. Oh so, yeah. I mean, mostly again because I'm too lazy to multi-class properly. <laughs> yeah, okay, that's fair. Uh, James Hake, how about you? What are you bringing? We've got our wizard, we've got our monk, we've got Marshall, and we've got uh, arcane covered. What are you bringing? This is a vile question to ask someone who's always a DM, Ben. This is just—it's <laughs> just mean. Um, I I would play a paladin, also straight straight one class, twentieth level, um, and I would go into a subclass that uh, is being developed for the project that Sean and I are working on right this very instant. Ooh, um, something which I can't tell about, but which would be very very uh, helpful to have. Uh, for the sake of my party members uh, and helping them out and the cool stuff they're doing. Don't tease me like that, James, because I happen to know, (laughs) and I won't say, but I happen to know the project that you two are working on. And it is something that I, like, were I at this company or not, this is something I would be super excited for. And I never even thought Paladin. So the fact that you have said Paladin. This means uh, that I'm the only one who doesn't know. (laughs) 
Oh, chat, I'm glad that Twitch chat is here today because <laughs> now I'm not so alone. You're the this uh, voice club we're making here. This is yeah, exclusionary. Terrible. Yeah. Terrible. Also, also, terrible answer from me because if it were happening next week, there's no way I could bring this still under wraps. Uh, nobody, says it'll be, mm-hmm. nobody says it'll be nobody says it'll be live like <laughs> oh, you know, yeah well we yeah. need to play test some way or another <laughs> there you go there you go ben um, what are you bringing what am i bringing look I, I would assume that i would gm if it was uh the the four of us so i'm gonna get out of jail free on that one um, um but I, honestly i have no idea because the Mr. same ben as james Brown. yeah <laughs> very rude well, you've chosen your characters um <laughs> i uh, similar to james i just have no Cheating. idea like what level 20 does really like i'm at the moment working on the monster hunter class for the ghostfire gaming blog and i'm up to writing levels i think the next one is nine to 14 and past level 10 i'm just like what sort of abilities do like classes even have this high i i I have no idea the highest i've ever played was a one shot at level 14 so not even the higher echelons of the higher tiers And I was, I don't know if I've told this story before, but I was infuriated because one dude brought a monk rogue multi-class and I was like, all right, they're high level. I'm going to bring giants. It's going to be like, like attack on Titan. Giants are going to be like eating the the folks in the village and they're going to have like a ground pound attack and they're going to have like, um, you know, beast Titan style throw rocks and they kind of scatter everywhere area uh, style (sighs) attack. So there'll be armor class there'll be saving throws i'm gonna have all my bases covered ranged attacks melee attacks i'm gonna make sure their flying can't uh, stop them from taking damage I know and i couldn't hurt going. this dude <laughs> i could not hurt him he dot he, he he had evasion so if he succeeded his save and he saved dc on dex on dexterity was through the roof he took no damage and his ac was like 21 and i just like there was nothing i could do to lay a finger on this dude so that's kind of why i don't play uh, at the upper echelons. But to ask a question that branches off of Gethin's initial question, uh, James, how often have you played at the higher tiers? Have you ever played a fifth edition campaign that's gone from one to 20? From one to 20, certainly not. Um, I've I've GM'd a campaign, Princes of the Apocalypse, in which we went from one, three to 15, and then we did a 20th level one shot kind of as a like a one year reunion later. But uh, actual one to twenty full on, no, no, it's never happened. I played some high level one shots, mostly conventions, when where one shots are the norm. Uh, I, I was a part of a similar level twenties versus a Tarask at uh, Origins a year or two before the pandemic hit, and that was pretty fun. Do you have a do you have a sweet spot where you like to play and or slash GM in terms of levels? I love five through ten. Five through ten is a beautiful <laughs> place for fifth edition. It, re- it really is, isn't it, Dale? I can see you. I had a very strong physical reaction to that, and <laughs> I don't think it needed to be that strong. But I was just like, as, as soon as you asked, I was like, "Well, it's levels five to ten, um, even six to ten. I, I just, I, I get so tired every time I have to make a character who's a lower level. <laughs> <laughs> see, I, I. I I enjoy the lower levels, but I get why players don't because uh, I have heard it said before, the game doesn't really unlock, doesn't really come online. The first five levels or the first four levels 
a really tutorial levels before you get all of your abilities and multi-attack unlocks and those third level spells come into play. And um, it's, yeah, it's that fantasy of competence that we've talked about once or <laughs> twice. You know, it's like, I just, I want to be good at things already. I have a question for Sean, because I don't know, I mean, I don't know how much design work you've done in terms of classes and subclasses and stuff, but Ben is right. It is super weird designing for higher levels. Because I've found that you get to the point where you're like, oh, here's a really cool idea for like a high powered thing that they can do. How do I make it so that it can be the level 14 ability rather than the level 20 ability? Because the level 20 ability has to be worse somehow. (laughs) Do you Hmm. have any insights on that kind of design? I I don't, unfortunately, only because I don't think there is any insight. If you review a lot of the work that's been done, you know, sometimes you'll, you'll read it and you'll say, I would never even use that ability, but it ends up being good. Or you think, oh, that's way too overpowered. But then in actual play, it it, it isn't. And you really need to play something, uh, especially at those higher levels, to realize how powerful they are or how weak they are. You know, when you're reviewing on, a, on other podcasts where we're like going through a, a unearthed arcana cl- subclass will be like, and level 20, yeah, who cares? <laughs> Whoever gets the level 20. <laughs> That's it. <laughs> you, you could say whatever. And by that time, it always depends on how the campaign has gone and how the characters have been built. Because mm-hmm. if it's a low magic with limited options, it's going to be, so much different than high magic, lots of magic items, and unlimited uh, ability to draw from any resources. So at at that point, the game sort of folds it up on itself. uh, And you just make the fun for your own group. Yeah. I always feel like it's um, really funny in fifth edition when you're designing stuff for multiple classes at a time and you're like really working to balance the sort of high level stuff and and figure it out. Um, and then you get to paladins and they are the class that just gets something really cool at level 20 every time, no matter the subclass, you transform into an angel of light. Like it, it just becomes this, um, this huge thing. I'm like, why does no one else get that? I wonder if there were like other editions um, where it was a little bit more, I don't know, consistently structured. I mean, did earlier editions, uh, you know, because 1 to 20, when you when you first start playing uh, D&D 5e, as someone who came in from video games and I was like, um, oh, you, you can only get to level 20? That doesn't seem like a very high ceiling. That this isn't like what Pokemon that. trained me for. Yeah, exactly. But then, like, <laughs> you never get above sort of 7th, 8th, ninth if you're playing in a, a long-term campaign. Maybe 13th, just based on um, James's work on Fables. 13th seems to be kind of the level where uh, campaigns are expected to kind of teeter out because... Man, 6th is the level where campaigns are expected <laughs> to peter out. Thirteenth yeah, okay, is thirteenth is optimistic. It is naively hopeful. What what were the level scalings in earlier editions, and were parties expected to get to that godlike level that they are, kind of above level fourteen in five e? We can look at I think two distinct editions of D anD D to get a really clear example of it. Fourth edition is a great one, especially when it comes to Dale's question of were the levels more sort of uniformly balanced because that was a key feature or drawback depending on who you are of fourth edition uh, a major a major focus of it certainly of you know level one up through level 30 with 10 level chunks of heroic paragon and then epic tiers of play 
And uh, another edition of D&D with which I have no experience but have read a fair bit about is uh, BCMI, the basic expert something master immortal. What's the C? Does yeah. anyone know what the C in BCMI is? I want to say companion. I want Something to say like communication. That. I'm not 100% sure. Yeah. Companion sounds about right. Um, which is, yeah. you know, it's it's really five sort of micro editions of D&D kind of packaged together into one era of the game. Part of the game's like zeroth edition, I think, basically. Yeah, first and second edition really didn't. Um, there was such a, a disparity between the classes that it was even more pronounced than you were seeing in fifth edition. Because uh, at least in fifth edition, if you're a fighter, you have these strange subclasses that you can take that give you powers. In previous editions, it, it was, you better hope you have a plus five Vorpal Sword friend because otherwise your fighter is not going to be very fun to play right. at, you know, past 14th, 15th level. Whereas the wizards are like, well, this round I'm going to wish, and then I'm going to time stop. And then you know, I, I'm going to change the fabric of reality. Whereas the, the rogue was like, well, I have an 80% chance to climb this wall uh, for, for 20th level. So we're going to, we're going to call that good. So we've definitely moved uh, into uh, the mechanic game design uh, spheres that that are at least more interesting and less disparate than it was in first and second edition. Sure. To go off at a sort of a bit of an odd angle um, and, and change topics slightly based on what you've said, though, I, I have to admit I, I should try, I believe, first and second edition in terms of that disparateness, in terms of like... My under- I don't know what edition it is, but my understanding is to become a paladin, you've got to start as a fighter and you have to be an elf mm. and you need to multi-class into bard. You kind of have to alchemical uh, your paladin together, which sounds cool to me. That sounds like a cool role-playing experience of like developing your character as you go along. Paladins yeah, and druids in old editions were wild. Yeah. Sorry, go ahead, Sean. Yeah. No, I was just going to say, what you're describing is actually a bard uh, in, in right. first edition. You have to go through all these steps. The paladin, I think you needed a charisma of 17. Uh, so just rolling up the character, unless you rolled a certain number, you couldn't even play a paladin. Right. And so if you had a game master who said, well, you need to keep the roles that you you know made for your character – you want to play a paladin? Sorry, you only got a fourteen for charisma. So <laughs> tough luck. Uh, and I think if we if, if we run the odds to- on that, like six ability scores <laughs> rolled in order, rolling a seventeen is something like one percent on three d six, and you divide that in six because you rolled it in order. Then what are the what are the odds of actually getting to play a paladin? Not good. Right. Right. You, you had to actually say, I want to play a paladin, please, Mr. Game Master. Can, you know, can I do this? <laughs> uh, yeah, if, if you tried to play first edition or even second edition now by the rules, second edition is a little easier. But if you tried to play first edition by the rules, you would not be able to. There's right. you. Uh, it would be impossible. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Good Fair review. Enough. Yeah, no. Like doing it's, a, it's it's just the truth. I, I like the idea of like you know, even if you try to do a Shakespearean production in as true to Shakespeare as you possibly can, it's impossible. You couldn't possibly do it exactly mm. how they did it back in the day and tabletop role playing games. Nor should you want that. to. Um, how do we feel? I'm just curious what the fun 
was like back then in terms of the disparity because I think of playing, and I did this in a one-shot, um, and I talked about this the other day at some Anyway, uh, playing the Witcher role-playing game. Yes, I know. Um, and the thing that Ding. struck me about that is that in 5e, all the classes functionally are even, right, in terms of their combat prowess largely. Um, they all specialise slightly differently in different areas, but when it comes to a fight, when it comes to rolling for initiative, you know, a, a hunter-ranger gets a little bit more DPS at the earlier levels, but then that balances out a little bit at the later levels. Um, largely when, it, when, it, when you roll for initiative, everybody participates. In the Witcher role-playing game, there's the man-at-arms, there's the sorceress, there's the Witcher, and I think those are the main kind of like fighty combat classes. And the bard is just a storyteller. Like they're just a, 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 they're a Shakespearean bard, you know. They just walk around and tell stories and their strength is in, uh, you know, convincing people uh that they should help the witcher, toss a coin to their witcher or whatever. The me- the medic or the doctor, I think they're called, can't fight either. They're just there to stitch up injuries and, and things like that. Um, and I, I, I was like, I, I found that really refreshing. But as folks that have probably played in that style of system more than I, is that unfun? Is that not fun for, for the table at large? I haven't played in that kind of system. <laughs> Fair enough. Yeah, I simply don't have any experience doing anything like that. Not even from earlier editions. So I've I've played some third edition, um, and I've I've been in the situation where eventually reached the point where the wizard who levels sort of quadratically in power and the fighter who levels linearly in power they diverge. And uh, I've, I've GM'd for that. And my only experience in a system like that, where everything is supposed to be balanced, but it doesn't really wind up that way, is that it's, it's bad. It feels bad to prep games for, it feels bad to play in. Because, you know, if you're a, a GM trying to challenge one player who's vastly above the other, uh, the others, then all of a sudden you've made challenges that only that one player can overcome. It's, it's a disaster. Um, for a system like the Witcher role-playing game, where there's a very like intentional disparity between the classes as opposed to, you know, the the game just not functioning as intended. That I mean, I'm I'm really curious about that. I'd love to play in a system like the Witcher role-playing game uh, that that works that way. Yeah, it was great. The doctor broke his wrist uh, in the <laughs> fight, and that was basically his participation. <laughs> Great. <laughs> <laughs> cool, cool. Nice. Uh, sure, what were you going to say? I was I was going to say that first edition isn't really as dramatically imbalanced, you know, in terms of the the roles as as Witcher uh sounds. It was just sure. over the length of the campaign, everyone got to shine, but they weren't all shining at the same time, right? At low levels it was Hide the wizard in a bag so no one can see him, so he can get to fifth level, get fireball, and then will become useful. Uh, I've and read then that fairy it tale. Sort of switches, yeah, exactly. And then it sort of switches at higher levels where it's you know the fighters are are out front, but it's the wizard who's protecting them from these greater threats using the magic. So there's something for everyone. You just have to play a full campaign to get there. Yeah. It doesn't happen you know, all within the same game. One to 20, baby. <laughs> mm-hmm. 
Cool. Well, speaking of uh, disparities in systems, uh, this there's, there's going to be a disparity between the edited version and the streamed version. Uh, <laughs> I just wanted to reiterate for folks who are listening to this after the fact, if you want to come hang out on Twitch, we are streaming last week to my great embarrassment. We forgot to mention the day. Uh, we mentioned <laughs> the times, but we didn't mention the day. So congratulations, day, everybody. Yeah, exactly. Congratulations, everybody who solved the D&D style puzzle um, of squirreling through <laughs> It was deliberate. It was, yeah, it was the plan. The Only the worthy may watch us on Twitch. <laughs> uh, so it is uh, Monday, 7 p.m. Pacific. Uh, uh, no, the other way around, sorry. Monday, 7 p.m. Eastern. Monday, 4 p.m. Pacific, uh, and uh, Tuesday, 9 a.m. Australian. And I don't know any other time zones outside of that, but come hang out on Twitch. The chat's popping off. Um, we may take some questions from there if folks have questions. Um, uh, but quickly, the one other quick news I wanted to get to, we mentioned it quickly last week while the Kickstarter was still happening. Now the Kickstarter has closed. It has raised 530000 uh, total raise for Aurora, Ooh. Age of Desolation. Uh, Sean, I will ask you again how you're feeling this week. Uh, so grateful, so overwhelmed, so uh, proud of not just the Ghostfire Gaming team who uh, are amazing creators in their own fields, whether it be marketing or products or game design, but also thanks to the freelance team, many, many fine people uh toiled on the on the the realms and then the the new game mechanics and thank you to all the backers even if you couldn't uh, give money to back if you spread the word uh you know we totally appreciate that and we look forward to making the finest horrific apocalyptic role-playing <laughs> game that we possibly can for you so thank you and thank you to the sculptors who sculpted uh, those miniatures because they're, uh, they're, they're incredible. I don't have them because I'm in my house today and you're going to see me dodging to the right as I avoid the sun. Um, but, yes, uh, thank you so much to everybody who backed. It was uh, incredible to watch and I'm so happy for you, Sean, um, that that went so well. Yeah. Speaking of things going well. Uh, Gethin has a question and Luke has a question and just quickly, Gethin, please never apologize for sending through emails. I love, uh, our, our weekly almost back and forth. Um, uh, Gethin's question was, uh, basically asking, and I think this was sort of a hypothetical, um, whether the ability to write creatively, write narrative stories, uh, generate, uh, characters, um, is better for a uh, an, an RPG developer or developing mechanics, interesting rules, engaging um, gameplay, um, which is kind of the better skill for a developer to have. And Gethin kind of acknowledges that both, uh, or the answer is probably somewhere in the middle or different people specialise in different stuff. Um, but just before I, I bat that over to the three of you, I wanted to follow up with Luke's question, who was also asking uh, kind of along the similar lines, if there are any good game development resources, books, articles, classes, YouTube channels for folks who are looking at developing their own systems, whether it's just doing a bit of homebrew or whether it's just... Um, uh, you know, they, they're actually looking at, at breaking in as a freelancer or something like that. Um, I'm going to throw that over to the three of you and then I'm going to close my blind and Dante can edit me <laughs> leaving the frame out. 
That's what you think. He's actually going to have <laughs> you solo on the screen as you get up right. and, and move out of frame and all the sunlight. Yeah, perfect. Right there. Thank you, Dante, <laughs> for doing that. All Thank of you ahead of time. All the dog pops into the chair. <laughs> We're all set. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> It's Ben's just Ben's just Ben's replacement, yeah. Um, no, I okay. I am going to very lightly plant my flag on uh, the side of the scale that is mechanical. I think because um, I think there's only so far you can get in terms of tabletop RPG development before you hit a, a mechanic. Um, otherwise, it's a storytelling game, which is still a good thing. But you know, it's uh, it, it is fairly necessary for the tabletop RPG genre that that there is some kind of um, engagement with with a mechanical element. Um, but yeah, no, I, I do agree that it, it's going to be somewhere in the middle. As far as resources, I'm trying to think because I must have so many of them. I definitely recommend Rob Donahue, um, who's with, he's with Evil Hat, isn't he? I think that's true. Mm-hmm. I could be lying to you, but uh, Rob, thank you. Thank you, Sean. Uh, Rob Donahue's Twitter, Rob like fairly regularly will will have these threads that just give you like invaluable design insight where it just kind of breaks down a mechanic and what it does what the effect of it is um and and it like very um sort of even-handed it's rarely like this is a bad mechanic it's it's usually this is what this mechanic does and this is where it will hit problems and um how it will clash with certain moods and you know, help others. Um, I also recommend on the story side of things, I think um, The Alexandrian is a blog that's really, really um, helpful in terms of sort of uh, planning adventure design and a lot of the stuff that you find there can kind of be extrapolated to other uses. So those are probably my two immediate thoughts of go-tos for for design sort of inspo and and help. (laughs) The pointing... Sean agrees, <laughs> officially. Yeah. I, w- I was going to tell James to go ahead. Oh, oh, thank you. Thank you. Well, I would read anything by Sean Merwin, <laughs> who is a fantastic uh, game developer and has written much about it. Um, in fact, uh, we work together, uh, I as editor and Tim as writer, uh, on, a, on a great series on D&D Beyond, a 10, I think, article uh, a series about designing combat encounters for D and D, and I mean, Sean, you can you can remind me and other folks of of where your other your other writings and wisdoms can be found uh, on the internet. So there, there's my answer on like wisdom. Uh, my answer on um, on skill set is uh, I was having a conversation with a former Wizards developer over lunch a couple of weeks ago, and we were marveling at the fact that. In video games, development roles are all very highly specialized. A uh, you know a, a person who's designing the way guns work in their shooter would never set foot in uh, you know in the story development room for that game. Uh, everyone has the thing they're working on, and it's very specific to their role. Whereas in game development, everyone has to be sorry. In tabletop game development, it's everyone has to be sort of a dilettante. Um, especially if you're an indie, especially if you're doing it all on your own. But even if you're working at the highest levels of the game, at Wizards, at Ghostfire Gaming, um, and 
it's 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 impossible to hyper specialize. So it's, it's I, I have almost a non-answer for the question. It's you, you really have to be good at both until our industry evolves such that uh, people you know there's enough games making money uh, from enough studios that people can afford to specialize. Uh, then you should you should practice both, and there's no reason to neglect one over the other. I think that James and Al both were spot on uh, with with everything they said. This is my hot take of 2022. Uh, It's that uh, role-playing games do not require great storytelling skills. And in fact, sometimes they're even hampered by great storytelling skills. Why is Uh, that? It's because you are not creating a story. You are facilitating a story being told. So while it is super valuable to understand what goes into a good story, it's not incumbent upon you as the game designer to tell the story. You want to set up a framework, whether it's an adventure or a role-playing game system, into which players and game masters can pour their own stories. Uh, so as much as I love to see designers come in with MFAs in creative writing and, you know, know all the texts and all those things, that's very valuable, but it's not where the crux of the game design takes place. As Dale said, you're going to come up against mechanics at some point, whether it's game design for the player side or game design, uh, for the DM to run your adventure and you want to, Get your storytelling ego out of the way and let uh, let yourself build a framework that will be filled in. Uh, that's that's the the best I can come up with. And in terms of you know what resources, let's put it this way. If you want to be a playwright, what do you do? You read plays. If you want to be a novelist, what should you do? You should read novels. If you want to be a musician, you should listen to read music. If you want to be a game designer, you should be reading games. You should go out and read every sort of game, role-playing game that's out there. Play it if you can, but at least read it and try to understand why does this uh, speak to people? What is going to be the outcome of this product? And when you can get to the point where you can start with the very simplest game and see what the mechanics are and why they work together, then you are building your way up toward the more complex games and you'll be you'll be right as rain. This is this is everyone. This is such an insight. This is Sean is exactly the person to take this advice from. <laughs> he teaches a class on it. Please <laughs> take the advice. <laughs> well I was gonna ask Sean, not not that I assume it's open to anyone and everyone, but I, I was wondering whether your class is, because I know it's at, through a university and I don't know how many personal details you want to give away if it's kind of tied to your other work. Give us your um, address, Sean. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. I, I'll just uh, ask this one question, which I think you can answer vaguely and you don't have to answer if you don't want, but is the class in person on campus or is it a digital class that's that's online? It's in person on campus, uh, 20-some students. We sit down and we do what I just said. We start with, uh, we start with interactive fiction because what is role-playing games, but you know, telling a story and letting someone else run through that story and create their own. And then we do that. We work our way from single person sort of journaling games, one, one page games, fiasco, uh, 
lasers and feelings. And then we get into fate accelerated and so on and so on. Uh, so that's exactly what we do. We say, how does this game work? Why would people like to play it? If you were going to make a version of this game, what would you do? How would you do it? Speaking of mechanical questions, uh, another question that I just thought was hilarious came in from George, um, which is fundamentally why do people hate slash nerf Goodberry? Um, which when I received this, I thought was hilarious because I hate slash nerf Goodberry um, because it is a hack <laughs> into the game. It's just like, eh, I don't want to have to worry about feeding myself Goodberry. Um, uh, Sean, how do you feel about Goodberry? Is this good design to you? Is this, I mean, I, I assume you're not going to say it's terrible design. Uh, it's a problematic spell. Uh, for many reasons. The first reason is because what you're talking about, if you would like to run a game that's survival based, here is a first level spell that removes any need for going out and hunting. Uh, so in that sense, it, it cuts off a portion of the game that people might want to, to invest themselves in. Uh, but it's also just, it's not a great spell because it's a first level spell that you know will heal 10 hit points. Then there are certain feats. I don't remember if it's a feat or some other ability that lets you add your uh, wisdom modifier to any healing spell. So not just is it here's one hit point, it's here's one plus three or one plus four hit points that you can give out 10 times. Uh, yeah. In combat, in combat, right? If, if you roll a natural 20 on a death save, you get up at one hit point. Well, what you've just done is you've handed out 10 ways to have people roll a natural 20 on their death save. If someone feeds them a good berry, taking away that need to use a healing potion or use them a medicine check. So it's a very powerful first level spell, not even considering the survival aspect of it. I just like that the the chat exploded as soon as we mentioned good. Yeah. <laughs> and Sean, you've already touched on the the cleric question a little bit of like, you know, if a cleric casts good barrier, if a cleric feeds someone using all their extra cleric abilities. Uh, sorry, Dale, what were you going to say? I was just going to point out chat as well. I like uh, penned, <laughs> penned by Ben has pointed out what I was going to say, which is that Z Bashu has a, a video about Goodberry where he suggests a, a very elegant uh, fix to the problem, which isn't to get rid of the spell. It's not to change the spell, ban it, anything like that. Just change it so that the mistletoe sprig, which is a material uh, component, is consumed when you use the spell, right? So then you've got this idea that it's like you can still put the emphasis back on, you know, a survival game, you know, an exploration-heavy game, but, you know, if you want to use Goodberry, you have to go and you have to find the mistletoe for it, um, which I think is is very, ah, it's, it's good. It's simple and it works. <laughs> I love the idea of I've, I've run Tomb of Annihilation a couple of times and had Goodberry... Um, impact that game. I'll, I'll use that word. Um, and I love the idea of like, no, you're going to go find the mistletoe, which famously grows in jungles. Um, <laughs> where it's everywhere. It's everywhere in jungles. Yeah, absolutely. That's why it's so associated with Christmas. Yeah. Um, <laughs> yep. um, yeah. I don't know. I think, I think the thing for me that rubs me the wrong way about Goodberry, because I am on that train as well, um, is that I am fine with spells existing that let you kind of um, shortcut stuff, you know, like you've got sure. your tiny huts and your mansions yeah. that you can yeah. that you can summon and you can avoid having to, you know, keep watch around the fire at night. Um, but those are higher level spells. You, you have to play through the game a little bit before you access them. Um, whereas what was that face? <laughs> is uh, like tiny hut. It's third, is it? 
Because I feel like I, Tiny I Hut's so. around constant. It's second. Yeah, it's second. That's, that's, what that's I thought. still yeah. higher than two, than one, Ben. Oh, okay. You're two is higher than twice, one. Maybe. Um, yeah, Tiny <laughs> Hut is my... That's like, two whole levels. <laughs> Goodberry, Tiny Fight Hut. Me. Um, Spirit Guardians, my three just like rage button spells. Spirit Guardians, it's not its fault. It's just okay. So I it know. turns out that I am much more zen about this question than Ben is. <laughs> yeah, I just I'm not as much of a fan of of spells that allow you to kind of quote unquote hack the game and get around a um you know a certain danger or a certain aspect of the game. And it's because it's not because I'm going for like realism, but rather a sense of like. I guess I just, I, I, I hate the idea of like one tool for every job. And I think that sounds a bit weird because Goodberry and, and Liam and Tiny Hut do specific things. But uh, what I mean by that is just like an easy out kind of like, we don't have to worry about this thing. And Liam and Tiny Hut also leads to this weird in the early levels because it is only a second level spell. Uh, thank you, James. Now I get to complain about that. Um, uh, that uh, I might be wrong about that. I wasn't looking. <laughs> oh, it is third. Sure. Yeah. <laughs> or, or Sean's just flashing me a three to confuse the, the, the conversation. It's five. It's five. I will believe whatever the last hand signal I am given, that is what I will believe. Okay, so it's a fifth level spell. So it's not that much of a problem. I don't get it until... Later on. Uh, no, a birth level spell. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> um, but it leads to like situations where the party are like, um, all right, the big, ba- we, we have fought our way through his dungeon. There's this big skull shaped door. All we have to do is push it open and there will be the big boss. Oh, I don't have my highest level spell anymore. Yeah, I'm a little bit hurt. All right, let's just Liam's tiny hut right on their doorstep. Um, and, uh, you know, and, and, and get in a long rest. That is and true. Just, I hate that. <laughs> it, it just creates the pacing. This, like, God, yeah, exactly. And, and the narrative, like um, the narrative verisimilitude to use that term is kind of gone as well, because like, I remember they did it in the middle of a bandit cave once. And I was like, all right, um, the bandits rock up and they like surround you and they're going to just wait for you to come out because now you're trapped it. You've kind of squirreled your way into there. And the party were like, yeah, that's fine eight hour rest, get all their stuff back. And they just blitz the room immediately after. And I was like, oh yeah, I should have thought of that. Damn. Um, are there any other similar, am I, am I on my own here, James? Do you have any uh, greatly disliked spells or are you, you more Zen than even I or Dale? <laughs> um, the, the thing is the, the campaign I'm currently playing in is, is bad for my hatred of spells because I don't have any really power gamey spellcasters. Both of the spellcasters are people who aren't superly mechanically invested. Like they pick good spells, but they aren't seeking a, a, a powerful exploit all of the time. Which honestly is that's how I like to play D anD. d We, you know, we just like to have fun, uh, and a little bit of tactical thinking is good. But we don't have to be constantly looking for overpowered combos. And so, for that reason, I'm very zen about the whole thing. Just because I haven't had any. I haven't have had any moments in recent memory where I can feel like, ah, there is a game design shaped knife sticking into my side. Like I hate, I get this out of here. Um, no. I don't know. I have that, uh, that thing ringing in my head that, um, you know, if given the opportunity, players are prone to optimizing the fun out of a game. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Ben is saying something and he's muted. Sorry, I'm muted so I didn't cough into the microphone. Um, uh, As somebody who GMs 90% of the time, 95% of the time, 
um, and I get frustrated at, at player optimization um, uh, when it's kind of taken to the nth degree. As soon as I'm on the other side of the GM screen, I'm like, oh, but if I do this, then I can get this bonus even higher. You know, like if I'm playing an archer and I don't have minimum, like a plus seven to hit at level one, I'm like, nah, nah, this build is all wrong. Like I need to fix this somehow. <laughs> so I, I I get it. I get that, that, um, that, um impulse uh if you will i do like the idea i'm just trying to find the comment uh one more time because it has been moving the chat um somebody said yeah you hit you heard it you heard it here first chat is bumping all right <laughs> popular come hang out in chat. <laughs> um somebody said and i will try to find it to uh i believe it was penned by ben again uh, which is not me fyi um uh, is the idea story. of tiny huts uh being tied to a campfire i'm just trying to see if they were the original one who brought it. anyway uh if it's tied to a campfire i like that idea maybe that's the ritual to cast it is you've got to build a campfire i probably wouldn't be so didactic to the players in terms of describing their spell but i like the idea that like tiny hut doesn't become concentration because then they can't go to sleep, but has something to it that means you still need somebody on watch, whether it's like still on watch to uh, keep the fire going or still on watch to like, I don't know, ensure somebody doesn't burrow up out of the ground. Does Tiny Hut have a flaw? I'm not looking for the right answer. I'm looking for <laughs> your answer. Where's the weakness? Where's the, yeah. the drain in Helm's Deep's wall? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Guess we, not. Does anyone how, have <laughs> how fun? How fun would it be if it didn't have a floor? Yeah. I love that being an exploitable weakness, and also a, a good use for the underused monsters, which have a burrowing speed as well. Very much. The, the one other trick I played on my players once when they tried to tiny hut in a desert was I buried them. Uh, there was a oh. sandstorm, and as so, if they popped the hut, it would just cause the sand to collapse down on top of them. So they had to. Um, That's fun. Figure out a safe way out. I like Um, that. Um, this is not, this is not relevant, but I did remember it from the last conversation just now, a resource that I should have mentioned for people who are mathematically challenged, like myself, who want to get into tabletop RPG design stuff. Um, anydice.com is just absolutely invaluable. It is the greatest website of all time. You heard it here first folks. Yeah. Helps with the dice maths. (laughs) Yep, it helps you determine probabilities for various numbers and shapes of dice. Very, very good for the for the spreadsheety part of this job. I am legitimately writing that down as we speak, so that I do not forget. You're gonna love it. You're gonna love it. Yeah, that that sounds very helpful because I've been like crafting uh, different things before and been like. Uh, is that too powerful? Is it not? I guess we'll never know until it gets play tested. But at least now I can get an idea. Um, yes. In actuality. What are we looking at? Yes, we've got time for one more question. This comes from Brian. Uh, Brian asks about, uh, this was a huge email. Actually, this is a, a couple of months old as well. So I apologize for, to Brian, um, uh, for only getting to it just now. Um, I won't read the whole thing because as I mentioned, it is quite long and kind of ties back to a conversation we had maybe 10 episodes ago, um, about, I know you'll all remember it perfectly well, um, about, uh, Mo- uh, using role-playing games to teach morality, particularly to children. Mm. Um, and, uh, the thrust, if I can remember it correctly of Brian's kind of the body of their email was that we were right to sort of be a bit hesitant in our answers. Um, and that it, 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 
it can, but it shouldn't be didactic. And also there is a level of, um, you know, moral escapism in playing games. The ability, you know, I was playing God of War last night. The ability to just run around and pull wolves apart and not feel bad about it. Um, Was that a weird way of phrasing that? Um, No, I I mean, at a certain point, it's the only way you can phrase it at a certain point. I just got flashbacks (laughs) to Ragnarok, that's all. Right, okay, cool. No... (laughs) Easy. Flash anyway, forwards. Yes. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. We are always right about everything we say, and you're right to recognize Absolutely. that. Yeah. 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 Uh, Brian's question is: How morally loaded and complex do you like to run your campaigns, and how do you balance that escapism inherent in the game uh, with the opportunities to explore morality? How much do you judge your players? No, that's a simplification. <laughs> oh, I, I judge my players plenty, but that's uh, that's a different yeah. sit. That's sure. separate. Um, yeah, <laughs> I'm enough. just judgmental. I don't know. I like to keep it. I like to throw in a light sort of trolley problem esque situation every now and then. Uh, not maybe quite so intense as a trolley problem, but um, you know, it's it's like early on in uh, in my sort of main campaign, I uh, th- there was a dying man who um, gave a ring to the party and and said, could you um, take this to my husband's grave and bury it with him? Uh, But the ring gave them fireball early. And and the player who was wearing the ring to carry it around loved it, loved it. I was like, I'm going to give you a bunch of power right now with the knowledge that it's intended to be temporary. I didn't say any of this at the time, of course. And then, sure. you know, watch what happens when they actually get to the grave. Do they give it up or do they not? And, you know, I was, I either way was going to be a reward, right? You keep the ring and you keep your fireball. But if they give it back, I was going to, I, I personally had decided to sort of refill uh, the, the coffers with a different magic item that was, um, you know, maybe not quite as, Splody, but uh, certainly cool and fun, and uh, it's it's nice to have those situations. I like to not punish them for their their moral choices, but just you know observe, <laughs> just observe. I want you to get a reward either way, but I find it interesting that you have to make a choice. I love uh, despicable characters. I love player characters that are like that have got problems. Uh, because this is a story. This is a story. We get to tell stories about all sorts of people. And the, the only time when I find, when I take issue in sort of uh, moral reprehensibility among my player characters, there's two cases. One, when it interferes with party cohesion, with our sort of social contract to sit around and play a game together. And two, when it interferes with the lines and veils drawn by my players set in session zero also a part of the social contract necessary for us to play a game together. And that's it. If it interrupts our ability to have fun as friends, then uh, we need to find another option. But otherwise, open season, bad characters are so interesting. Flawed characters are so fun. Uh, and, And the interaction between characters whose ideals clash is, I mean, that's the stuff that stories are made of. I love that stuff. Sean, how about you? What, what, what uh, moral complexity do you play your games with? Level of moral complexity. The, the home group that I play with, the, the players are morally reprehensible. And notice I didn't say the characters are. Uh, the players, so, yes. Add, yeah. Adding, and adding smelly too, if you sort, remember. Yes. Adding sort, any sort of you know, moral component to the game, they are going to smash it 
just for the fun of smashing it, right? It is a beer and pretzels <laughs> game without many pretzels. Uh, now, bringing the uh, bringing the moral. Here's a good way of putting it. Um, if you write a story and the the morality play of the story overpowers the actual narrative of caring what happens to the characters, you're writing propaganda. You're not writing a story. <laughs> and that's what I worry about in terms of game design is like making an adventure where the whole point of the story is making this one choice. That's not fun. Right, that's not the full breadth of what this game and the stories that you're telling could be. Now, if there, as, as James said, if there's a character that you want to see what choice they'll make, because it's fun to see the player creating this story as they go, then that's totally fine. But I don't want to get into like alignment arguments or the the infamous. Well, my character would do that. <laughs> so therefore I'm going to ruin everyone's fun. And and that's another problem with these choices is you're not giving a lot of times a single character. You, you're trying to give the group a choice, but you're really giving a single character the choice because if you give that player and their character agency, one character deciding to do something is making the choice for the whole party. And, and that makes it a little bit more difficult too. So I try to, in the, adventures that I write stick to, again, a framework for, for a story, let the game master pour in more moralistic uh, aspects if they want, but otherwise try to set up something that everyone could have fun, not just the people who want this moral uh, play to, to take place. Sure. Mm. And I mean, you know what, what has occurred to me after listening to James and Sean both talk is that I think it's just more interesting for the plot and for the characters if their, you know, quote unquote morality clashes aren't against, you know, this broad, unknowable concept of what is and isn't moral. That kind of a clash is so sort of nebulous and vague that it doesn't, it doesn't give me much to go on. I'm like, oh, okay. Whereas if the clashes come between, you know, um, values of different characters, um, whether those are NPCs or player characters, if if that's where that kind of question comes up, I think that's, um, I don't know, that's more interesting to me. Yeah. Dale, you've touched on something really good because uh, in in many of the games I play or and and have run over the past, you know, since college, I've typically played in groups where that are where most of the players are, if not all of the players are queer, including myself. And so, you know, we always have a conversation in our session zero where it's like, do we want to have a game where like homophobia and the conflicts that can arise because of it are are salient in this game world? And I've received all sorts of different uh, responses to that question, even from the same people at different points in their lives and, and at different tones of gameplay. Because, like, we're all, you know, obviously uh, against homophobia. We're morally uh, opposed to it. But because this is fiction, because this is a safe place for us to uh, kind of I- explore stories and and what ifs, and not just, you know, because we're not just putting ourselves as an avatar into the character, but we're creating a character. Uh, the fun can be seeing 
how will this character who is, you know, raw and uh, rough edged in the ways that good, interesting fictional characters are, how will they catch upon the sort of moral sandpaper of the story that we've decided to make? And will that element be a part of it or will some other element be a part of it that we want to focus in on this time? And so, yeah, you know, in, in, in including something that is that is morally reprehensible uh, for whatever reason uh, is not inherently a bad thing. It's just it's it's just a bad thing if if it makes the people playing the game uh, unhappy or, or worried uh, or, or feel unsafe in the in the uh game space that you've created for them yeah for sure the players often make me feel unsafe in those <laughs> <laughs> are you okay yeah. blink twice if you need help yeah. no i i i using a term borrowed from dale before i love the shoppy the shoppy trolley po- the shopping trolley problem. Thank you. Uh, now it's a shopping trolley. It's a shopping trolley. Is it? Is it not a shop? <laughs> no, it's just a, <laughs> it's a street car. Okay. Wait. No, okay. That would hurt. Ben. Much, much what less. What we would call what we would yeah. call a tram is in this case called a trolley. What we call a trolley is not involved. Yeah. Okay. Touche. I'm You'll just switch five tomatoes if you don't switch the track. I'm gonna, I'm gonna mess up some people's toes real bad. It's just someone rolling down a hill in a Coles trolley. <laughs> Get out okay. of the way! And here I thought the dumb thing I said was shoppy trolley. Uh, <laughs> shoppy, shoppy trolley was also very funny. It took me took me a moment to, uh, to realise my mistake there. Uh, yes, God okay, for you, uh, Ben. We got really heavy there for a second, but boy, yeah. did you pull us out of it. <laughs> I'm glad I did it at a good moment and not a, uh, not a, a potentially sensitive moment. Um, I am now making a monster called the animated trolley. <laughs> yeah, it, right. It can do a lot of damage. <laughs> it, it, it affects movement speed because it just bumps over toes. Um, yep. uh, no, I love filling my campaign with with uh, uh, morally oh. complex problems such as uh, cars and or trams and or heavy things running over one person as opposed to five. Um, because that's, you know, I enjoy uh, exploring that in my game. The one thing that I've learned, and I think I talked about this on a previous episode, was not to uh, judge uh, my players um, and learn very quickly that everybody has a different um definition of morality um i i just saw in a uh, on the chat and i'm sorry i missed who it was who said it but they just mentioned that uh, uh a cultist uh was spared by one of their party members and perhaps actually not sparing the cultist would have been the more morally uh, righteous thing to do they didn't necessarily uh, uh extrapolate on the circumstances but my assumption is that that cultist may go on to do more evil and I remember in my earliest campaign, I never. This is like one of my earliest memories playing D anD D, was uh, a goblin making a deal with the cleric, and uh, saying, "Yes, I will tell you where the goblin king is if you spare me." And the cleric's like, "Yeah, absolutely, no problem. You can leave. There's a door right here." And the goblin's like, "Awesome!" And the cleric goes, "Why don't we shake on it?" And the goblin goes, "Okay." And uh, as they shake hands, the cleric says, "I, I cast uh, inflict wounds." Um, and I was like, well, they're making contact, I suppose. Like, I didn't even get him to roll to hit. I was like, yeah, this this thing's completely unaware. It just kind of melts uh, where, where it's standing. But it was this interesting moment where 
I was like, ah, oh, so the definition of morality is different between people because I grew up on Batman where, like, thou shalt mm. not kill under any circumstance. Like, killing is the ultimate crime. Um, whether as, you know, other folks uh, hold opinions like, well, if this creature is going to go on and do more evil, it is better to stop it from doing that evil now, even if it is in a defenseless position. So, See, I'll um, put, I'll well, put the, it this I way. Think- I would love to see that happen in a TV show. I think that would be a very um, powerful character moment. I, yeah. I would have a hard time thinking of that character as anything other than the villain if I saw that done out in a TV show. <laughs> I would be hard-pressed. Uh, but what a character moment. And and if people do do immoral things, if people you know, are doing these things, who is judging them? Who is not just judging them, but who is providing the outcome of their actions in the real world? Mm. Fate, uh, a divine being in the game. It's us. So we, yeah. as the game master, then get to say what the outcome of this morality is. And so is it really morality or is it just us either bringing justice, bringing a cool story, right? W- what what are the outcomes of that? Uh, real world morality and morality in a role playing game are two really separate things because of that. Because we get to we get to say what happens. Yeah, yeah. I guess you're right. I, I'm thinking of a circumstance from a more recent game which caused like an hour and a half debate. Um, uh, between the players where a, a character had, done, like an NPC had done something reprehensible, but it was kind of already done. Um, and uh, so the, the, this NPC was an elf. He'd locked himself in a mirror to escape a calamity that he had kind of caused. Um, and so it was, you know, it was, it was, ah, I will escape this calamity by jumping into a mirror and like locking myself in this alternate dimension oh, no, I can't get out. And he's been trapped there for, for hundreds of years and he's gone a little bit nutty. And so it was like, well, the, the bad thing's already done. There's going to be no consequences to letting him out or leaving him in there. Um, it's just a matter of whether you think he deserves to be let out at this point, whether he deserves to to, to go on and uh, continue to live his best life. Um, does, does he deserve to suffer is, I think, one of the most trenchant moral questions you can pose in any form of media. Mm. Yeah. Um, and it's one that I think, depending on what era of media you're watching, you'll see a variety of different answers to. Our our view on punishment shifts wildly throughout this culture, yeah, and throughout sure. different cultures throughout the world. Mm-hmm. And I mean, well, all of this discussion. I mean, just to briefly touch on alignment, when I, that's a lot to get embroiled in. But you know, I mean, I feel like this is part of why alignment starts to fall apart, right? You've got your, you know, law axis. And where does law have its place in morality? Something can be illegal but moral. Someone can, something can be legal and completely immoral. We've seen that multiple times in the real world. And so then you get to the other axis, and it's like I don't know, good and evil. And there's <laughs> no there's no clarity there, right? Um, which is where I think the question of morality starts to. I understand the attempt to codify it, but I also understand why that doesn't tend to work. Sure. Some people like to replace good and evil with selfish and selfless on their alignment yeah. axes, and I'm quite fond of that. Yeah, I think same. Well. Yeah, um, just to quickly answer uh, the the sort of second part of Daniel Brian, sorry Brian's question um, was ba- similar you know, names Daniel you, Brian. 
It's the it's the the soft consonant start. Um, uh, the uh, in terms of if you do include moral complexity in your uh, campaigns, um, and you are uh, wanting to balance that out with some levity, and as they uh, kind of term it, the moral escapism that's inherent to role playing games. My simple answer is every couple of sessions, I just throw them a monster. You know, in the real world, depending on your <laughs> depending on your uh, you know personal feelings on. Um, different things, you know, going out and harming uh, even like a bear that might attack you. Um, you know, the bear's got feelings and, and you know, a family presumably. But a horrible, gribbly monster, an ooze, a fiend, a, a whatever it happens to be, some sort of monstrosity, a, a basilisk, whatever, just let them slaughter it. Like no, this thing doesn't have a family, doesn't have kids, uh, you know, it has somewhere it sleeps, but that's basically it. Feel free, have at it. Uh, just every couple of sessions, throw in those, those kind of circuit breakers to let them just unleash uh, what they've put on their character sheet. Speaking of unleashing, I'm about to unleash our three other hosts because that is the end of the Eldritch I'm going to start making you a scorecard for, for transitions. What's the Witcher segue this week? references, transitions. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, well, what, what scores highly? Was that a good transition or was that a bad I, that, I, I quite liked that one, actually. Okay. I'll okay. give you that one. They're all good. Sean's <laughs> um, correct. If you've enjoyed, I hope you've enjoyed listening on the stream and commenting along again. It is uh, Monday, 7 p.m. Eastern Standard Time, 4 p.m. Pacific Standard Time, 9 a.m. Tuesday, Australian uh, uh, Standard Eastern Standard Time. I hope I got all that correct. Um, If you're listening on uh, YouTube, if you're listening on uh, Spotify, uh, somewhere else, feel free to give us a rating, give this episode a like, subscribe to the channel, all that good stuff. It helps the Lawcast get out to more listeners and help us ascend to the number one spot that fate has promised us in the D&D multiverse of podcasts. Uh, My name is Ben Byrne. I've been here with James Haig, Dale Kingsmill, Sean Merwin, and we will catch you all again next week. Oh, podcast at ghostfiregaming.com if you want to send us a message. Good, good. The stream saw that. That's kind of embarrassing, isn't it? That's perfect. They know now. You mean the whole podcast or just that? Yeah.